Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. The art market is about to get a dose of a new vaccine called anti-money laundering regulations. Unlike the Pfizer vaccine, AML regulations are likely to affect the nervous system of the art world with no end in sight. This week's guest is renowned art dealer Anthony Meyer, who is currently president of the Art Dealers Association of America, a by-invitation-only nonprofit membership organization of the nation's leading galleries in the fine arts, founded in 1962. Now, in its 60th year, the ADAA has nearly 190 member galleries in over 30 U.S. cities. I caught up with Tony not long after he had led a delegation to the Treasury Department to discuss the form and extent of the regulations to be imposed by the end of 2021. A Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations noted in 2019, quoting here, that the art market was the largest legal unregulated industry in the United States and speculated that the U.S. market represents about $28.3 billion, or some 44% of global art sales. The upcoming legislation is intended to address the evasion of sanctions, the use of shell companies to hide transactions, buyers and sellers, and in general to bring sunshine into what has been until now a largely impenetrable market. It will have the effect of requiring due diligence and documentation about transactions, and will dramatically change the art world's culture. I think the thinking on art fairs today for the foreseeable future is a regional audience. So the distance traveled for the possible clients is one that is ideally drivable, or the travel component is not a multi-stop adventure. Anthony Meyer Fine Arts was established in 1984 as a private dealer in the secondary market. Working with both public and private collections, Tony built a highly regarded international reputation specializing in post-World War II contemporary masters. In 1996, Anthony Meyer Fine Arts opened a public gallery space in the Pacific Heights neighborhood of San Francisco. The gallery occupies space on the ground floor of a 1911 mansion designed by the famous San Francisco architect Willis Jefferson Polk. Anthony Meyer Fine Arts mounts five exhibitions per year dedicated to emerging, mid-career, and established artists, including Janine Antoni, Leonardo Drew, Jim Hodges, and Teresita Fernandez. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Max. I'm glad to have you, and I want to hear about your travel plans. You've shown in all the premier locations in the past, Art Basel and Freeze and Tafoff and Miami Beach and ADAA and elsewhere. But given the disruption of the pandemic, where are you planning to participate this year? So we were in Basel two weeks ago, and I think the thinking on art fairs today for the foreseeable future is a regional audience. So the distance traveled for the possible clients is one that is ideally drivable, or the travel component is not a multi-stop adventure. And with Basel, uh, that was absolutely realized with lack of Americans, lack of Asians, lack of South Americans. The overall wealth within a small radius of Basel, Switzerland is quite high, and that was the reasoning to choose that fair over Freeze Masters. Freeze Masters begins tomorrow uh, along with Freeze, and this will be the first time ever that they've had the two under one tent. Good news, bad news, that is due to a smaller number of vendors or exhibitors, and it'll be curious to see what that brings. Obviously, London has more 
ancillary activities with the auctions. But again, as a COVID result, the PAD fair, the private art dealers fair, is not happening this year. So, I mean, COVID is definitely putting a blemish on things, but people are adaptable and and pivoting accordingly. We are following Basel with our next venue being the Art Dealers Fair, which I ran for almost 15 years and is the new president of the Art Dealers Association. Uh, It's one of my joys and headaches. Um, (laughs) Tell us, what, what are some of the headaches, Tony? How do those play out for you? The headaches relate to what else is going on in the world. And obviously, New York is a thriving and active center. So depending upon, for example... Move Out is Sunday, mm-hmm. uh, the 7th of November, and that is the same day as the marathon. Oh, my God. So you're going to hand things to joggers to take with them, or how does that work? Exactly. Yeah. We are a cash and carry. Uh, <laughs> we have a to-go line. But um, So those are just some of the things dealing with de Blasio. There were some misinterpretations of the art dealer community. Uh, whereby we were under uh, COVID restrictions to enforce review of vaccines or ask upon entering the storefront or the gallery. Uh, And we were able to convince his office that we are more retail and therefore uh, the duress and extra manpower and time to question people and uh, what it would take to fulfill that obligation, we were able to skirt given a clarified status as to how we all make a living. What would you say the largest obstacles this time around with the ADA will be versus a normal year? So the ADA fair is a quite unique one. It's obviously run by a membership for a membership. But more importantly, for the last 30 years, our partner has been Henry Street Settlement. Right. And so the celebratory nature of the event and the opening night is quite unique being the beneficiary. And so the huge question for us was the entertainment component other than obviously what's on the walls. And that relates to food and beverage. And so it was paramount to the Henry Street audience that there be some beverages and or snacks. Mm -hmm. And so how to navigate that, where to place it, no different than any community. We've got uh, exhibitors that um, have immune uh, compromised systems and people with masks off are a a risk uh, as they are in any kind of public venue. And so just the normal concerns uh, and then um, trying to sell something at the same time is just another hurdle to have to be aware of and be flexible with. And how about going to your beautiful gallery then across the country to San Francisco? How has COVID altered the mix of collectors who are patronizing your gallery? So the unique situation we have, which is quite different than really any other gallery in the city is we're a destination visit. We're in a residential neighborhood, Pacific Heights. And so it's been always a dedicated visit for somebody to get themselves to the gallery. We have no signage on the building. It's a landmark building. And the demands of COVID have necessitated a calendar uh, system that we use, which basically allows folks to make appointments and come and see the shows. And we have, with COVID in mind, canceled or postponed for the foreseeable future, any kind of gathering slash opening. The gallery is quite intimate and probably 900 square feet, 1100 square feet of space. And so to have to worry about the number of bodies coming or going, uh, we decided it was safer and smarter. And people seem to be receptive to the lack of 
of openings. Uh, we're still getting people coming and seeing the shows, and then obviously an, an amplified online format that we've used for actual physical shows as well as simply online exhibitions has taken place with COVID. Yeah. Given that, and speaking of online, help our listeners understand how you prioritize different sales platforms like online viewing rooms and booths at fairs and shows in the gallery and anywhere else. And I'm assuming in that that some artists are more suited to one platform than others. Every exhibition that has taken place since March of 20 uh, has had a physical space here on the wall. Uh, the documentation, I would say, has been amplified, possibly with a, a walkthrough or a Q&A with the artist or possibly a critic. And the video component has been something we did not do in the past. So that is pretty much the, the most significant changes. The other thing that has gone on with the art fairs that did not happen, that were simply virtual, uh, we have done either one-person shows, like we always do, if you will, at the Art Dealers Fair, but it's been obviously a, a more concentrated technicolor experience virtually than it would have been in person. That's been the biggest difference, but we have not hosted any show with the exception of the art fair online viewing rooms other than what was physically here, whether somebody came to see it, but it was not a cut and paste type of affair with technology. The artworks were physically here and situated. And Tony, in terms of a client walking in the door who's made a reservation, how many are unknown to you entirely? Well, that gets to another question, Max, which is the beauty and joys of living in San Francisco and in the Bay Area. Uh, there is obviously a, a very dedicated art community, both in the consumption sense and in the viewing sense. But uh, so often, a big part of our business takes place in other cities, whether it be at a trade fair or at a warehouse or at someone's home. And so the decision to raise our children and live here in San Francisco is purely lifestyle. It is a very small audience that, if you will, walks in and buys something. Uh, either there's an education process that takes place, but the spontaneity uh, of somebody walking and buying something that's an unknown as a surprise is really, really, really small. And our business per se that is San Francisco-centric is really not much more than 7 or 8%. And that's not by choice. It's just the realities of uh, the environment, the Bay Area per se. And sometimes it's easier to, if you will, have somebody spend the time looking at art when they're traveling. Yeah. And also there's a lot of competition growing in the niche that you occupy with a big footprint. But how are private sales in auction houses affecting private art galleries like yours? I'm quite privy to I mean, my repertoire or dance card is about 40 different songs. And that's uh, <laughs> ranging from the, the Carl Andres to the Agnes Martins, Gerhard Richter, etc. And I've been doing the same thing again and again and again. And so the, the likelihood that I would be called upon for something or I may have even sold it in a previous iteration is quite high. So the, the, the niche that I occupy, I'm both a source for information as well as an actual buyer of the works. The bulk of what we sell, we own on the resale world. And that is really dictated 
by the sheer factor of control. Because if I cannot produce what I'm offering or discussing with you, uh, you're never going to take my call again. So yes, the efforts of Christie's, Sotheby's, and Phillips has amplified uh, with some specificity to private sales, but in the small niche of what I occupy in the ecosystem, uh, I'm quite privy to what's trading hands and often will be participatory or complementary. It's just too small a world and the number of opportunities are pretty finite. And speaking of it's being a small world, there's also a finite number of artists who reach a stature that would be of great interest in the secondary market, even as living artists. And I'm wondering how you go about identifying new artists to represent. Well, the funny thing is that, yes, it is finite, but I'm always learning and listening. And that dovetails into my kind of resources, not monetary, but if you will, academically or or the history of. And so the library that we have is extraordinary. And the learning curve of names that I may not know or know well enough, for example, obviously been very, very, very involved in the Donald Judd world since 1994, the year that he passed. And my first trip to Marfa, there is a building that is owned by the Judd Foundation called The Bank. And in the bank is uh, many different artists, uh, Albers, Rembrandt, Wiener Werkstatt Works, Ad Reinhardt, Barnett Newman, etc. But there was a beautiful painting on the second floor in the former president's office by an Italian guy I had never heard of. And his name is Antonio Calderara. And Calderara was this gentleman that never crossed the ocean, uh, was in many, many, many group shows, was a student of Fontana. And was occasionally in the group zero, more reductive painters. And Judd had ended up with this work because a dealer of his in Zurich, the Vernas, he had an outstanding balance with them and he took the artwork in trade. Mm -hmm. And fast forward to eight years ago was with some German clients in their home on Lake Maggiore. And we took a drive to Calderara's foundation learned more about him, and we ended up doing his first exhibition in the States, and we did it at the Art Dealers Fair four years ago and had 14 works for sale, placed them all over the U.S., and uh, again was a an aha moment uh, based on travels and association to Judd. Uh, that's also another name related to the Judd uh, experience is this lady Loretta Vinciarelli, had heard the name, was a former girlfriend of Judd's, had just a, an amazing, amazing educator at Columbia, as well as uh, somebody that made their mark on paper in these just densely uh, saturated watercolors, almost architectural feeling. She had a show at the Gray Gallery. She was in the Whitney Biennial in 2007. And again, learned more about her, was able to acquire some things through some Judd networks, and uh, was a bit of a surprise. On the other end of the spectrum, more youthful talent or talent that's alive is again, word of mouth or travels or seeing artworks in other friends' galleries or even at art fairs. And so we are gonna be doing some work with a young lady in New York uh, named Jessie Henson. We'll be showing some work in 
January. Met her through Jim Hodges, who we've worked with for 25 years. And uh, and like everything, we kind of give it a, a roll of the dice. And if everybody's happy at the end of the experience, we'll do another exhibition. But the idea of controlling an artist is never something that's been of interest. And with that, if you will, mindset, have maintained these relationships with Jim Hodges and yeah. uh, Teresita Fernandez and Leonardo Drew, Donald Moffat, etc. So more laissez-faire and organic. And if it's meant to be, it will. And if it's not, then we part ways and say thank you. There are so many people of high net worth in your region, but the number of galleries, you're really the standout gallery in Los Angeles. There are so many in proportion in New York as well. How do you explain the fact that you're who you are in a city of such scale and in a region of such scale? You know, it's been a slow burn. Uh was uh, interested in this uh world and pursuing it uh, since college and little by little put my uh, pants on and, and shall we say grew with time and, and again specificity and given the fact that my dance card or repertoire is quite finite I've been able to distinguish myself you know if I'd gone with a, a wider net I probably wouldn't have been able to a lot of luck and some and a lot of hard work that certainly now I want to ask you about SF MoMA because it's gone through so much change lately and it is so important to the arts ecology in Northern California. What do you hope may come of it in its next chapter? The only thing, Max, is you've got to go backwards in time. So I think that if you take the scales of the institutions of the Fine Arts Museum and SF MoMA, and you dial back 10 years ago, the tables uh, were completely turned to SF MoMA and the amazing job that you know, various people like Jack Lane and David Ross and obviously Neil have done. And Gary Garrels has been a key uh, part of that. Between the times, quite a bit of toxicity, a lot of the thunder and shall we say uh, footprint in the ecosystem of the art museums has been taken over by the Fine Arts Museum. And John Buchanan started a little bit of that. And the new building obviously was a wonderful place to show work. But the change has been in their favor. The sadness that has befallen SF MoMA is something that's on the mend. Uh, and only time will tell. They have the capability. They obviously have the collection. The Fisher holdings are unlike anything in the entire world for the works that were of interest to Don and Doris. They're here. There are some wounds to be nursed. And the new director will have an amazing opportunity to bounce back from the sadness uh, with the departure of Gary and, and Neil's decision to leave. But I don't count them out on any level. I just think time will be their friend uh, and that will not be something that's very quick. And then there are so many other great museums in the region, Berkeley and Stanford. Do you work with all the museums in the region, or are you more focused on a couple in respect to their trustee collectors, for example? The collecting, I mean, we've sold to all of them. The collecting aspect, obviously, of SFMOMA's board and the Fine Arts Museum board is the most robust, but it's a tiny town. And if you aren't friends with all these people, you're at a great, great disadvantage. And even the, you know, the schools, I mean, CCA has done an amazing job. This gentleman that took over you know, Larry started it, and then came Ralph Rugoff and Matthew Higgs, and then this gentleman, Anthony Huberman, is doing a fantastic job. The one who's obviously at the greatest disadvantage, and I hope they persevere and, shall we say, 
tread water long enough to be well and do well is the uh, the most robust historically, which is the Art Institute. And I, again, time will tell, but it is a very small town. And uh, the questions of how many institutions can exist, is there any cannibalization that goes on? Absolutely. And the task for the new director is a, is a challenging one. Museum shows of artists used to be very significant in the arc of an artist's career. They seem to me now increasingly following in the wake of advocacy by influential galleries like yours rather than being the leaders. Is that your sense as well? The way I look at it is is a bit like the last chance to see Frank Sinatra or the Rolling Stones or, or, or that kind of star power. When these exhibitions like Via Selman's was put together um, or the Mitchell show right now, I don't think that the lenders or the cost of these exhibitions related to insurance, travel, cataloging, et cetera, are only going north. So the cost, the safety, the goodwill of the owners in terms of lending, it is getting harder and harder and harder. And so my analogy of the last chance to see Frank or the Stones or Led Zeppelin or whatever is is not far-fetched because these things are not going to leave their homes with the same frequency that they did in the past. Some galleries have done some spectacular historic either exhibitions or juxtapositions. I think in our lifetime, probably Larry did the best in terms of very focused things, whether it be Susan Rothenberg horses or um, black and white paintings by Rauschenberg, Jasper John's map paintings, etc., It takes a fair amount of acumen, academics, and obviously a wallet to see these things through. And sometimes, actually, Max, the best place to do these is art fairs. That's why we did that Calderara thing at the Art Dealers Fair. And I'm finding at the art fairs to create a message of a living or a deceased artist in kind of a linear presentation, obviously finite numbers because of the size of the booth, is one of the better places to do this because you've got a captive audience. You often have tens of thousands of people pass through and it gives you a chance to kind of make a mark or a message or distinguish yourself. Well, where does that leave museums? That is in the olden days of 2019, everyone obsessed about the turnstile and the reclame of an opening and all the clinking of glasses. Here we are almost two years later and it feels like the gearing is kind of worn out to restart that engine of big shows, big exhibitions, lots of loans, lots of international travel. Do you think there's a future for that in San Francisco or in New York for that matter? I truly don't know. I think a lot of the effort in the near future for every museum is going to be looking within. So in other words, what are the contents of what we have that we haven't possibly either juxtaposed in better format or reconstituted in a new presentation? And I think the hardest thing for young talent in the curatorial world is to be able to look backwards, possibly, again, juxtapose or quantify and qualify past talent with present and future talent. And unless somebody has the chops to talk about the past, I don't know how they can talk about the future or the present. It does raise the question about the encyclopedic museum in general. We see what Michael Govan is up to in LACMA, which is in a way to put some of the volumes in the basement. What are your thoughts about the power of 
as you mentioned, the fine arts museums or other encyclopedic museums as places for contemporary art versus standalone modern contemporary museums? I think going to places like the Gardner or the Frick or somewhat finite collection, you can't be everything to everybody. So you have to choose your menu and I guess in some levels, choose your audience and be comfortable and confident that you're doing the best job possible with that messaging. People laughed often at the Fine Arts Museum for the number of fashion shows they did. And I think that was really, really short-sighted and small-minded. It's a part of the ecosystem. And, you know, if you don't like it, then you don't pay the ticket to go in. But I do think that there is going to be some reevaluation as to not being everything for everyone. Writing the wrongs of the past is obviously something that's paramount. Many, many acquisitions have been attempts at that. But again, it's a long game, not a short one. And I think, honestly, you and I have been doing this long enough. Uh, when we look back and think of exhibitions that we've seen or talent that has passed through a, a doorway of an institution, it's the aggregate of the effort. It's not the single. So anybody that judges an institution or a director or a curator based on a, a single exhibition is is so dim-witted to analyze something that way. Well, of course, that is often how judgments are rendered. Now, you mentioned how freewheeling the art world is, notwithstanding the fact that there's a small number of players. But there are anti-money laundering regulations now looming for the U.S. art market. In fact, the government will begin implementing these laws by December of this calendar year. What concerns you most about pending changes in art market regulations? So as the new president, we have been talking to the Treasury Department uh, and uh, Washington about some of this potential legislation. And honestly, Max, the clarity of it is only being formulated as we speak. And the bias or equation of antiquities to the art market is a, an unqualified statement. And I think that what is going on via the Treasury Department is to understand more and more it's at what threshold uh, should that scrutiny come to be. And the first question was $10,000. And I believe we've made a case to enlighten and clarify that at that threshold, the volume of transaction that's going to go on and, and the ability to decipher or use your x-ray glasses to see the bad guys from the good guys is going to be very problematic. Yes, there is opaqueness in our world, but the thing that was unclear to the folks there at the Treasury that I think we have made a case is that the effort that goes in to source the material, whether it be a new artist, a rising artist, or a tried-and-true gray hair already in the books, is immense. And so the placement, the transaction is never taken lightly. And we're not just looking for anybody that walks through the door to buy something because the purpose of the transaction is, again, placement and fast forwarding, possibly getting it back for sale at a later date. So knowing where something is, is really, really significant in the end game or long game of what we all do. And to think otherwise is misinformed. Tony, for our listeners who aren't following this as assiduously as you and I are, can you just give a quick elevator speech about what some of these regulations are intended to do? My juvenile understanding is to create some clarity 
and visibleness to Tony sells something to Max. Who is Max? Where does Max get his money? Or if Max is an advisor, who is it that Max is placing this with? So that there is not the chance of what they call bad behavior, which really relates sadly to possible improprieties or terrorism or, if you will, laundering uh, illegal cash transactions. Yeah. So the purpose or the guidelines are some that you hope have a level of visibility with no opaque lenses that will allow you to understand every single step of the movement of both money and artwork so that there is not some unknown destination or payer in the equation. Well, it certainly will be a huge change. I think it's a moment in time for both, as we've been talking about, the gallery system, museums going through so much change, collectors in terms of their background. Tony, thanks for giving us a little snapshot of your world. Very enjoyable. Thank you, Max. We've been speaking today with Tony Meyer of Anthony Meyer Fine Arts in San Francisco. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.